Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project, and welcome back. I'm Ron Steslow. Today, we're bringing you another Explained episode, where we take a question we get frequently from our listeners and take a deep dive to explain it. If you have any questions you'd like us to cover on upcoming Explained episodes about the recent election, our mission, how government works, or anything else, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at lincolnproject.us. We've gotten lots of questions from listeners about explaining the nuts and bolts of civics and elections and the functioning of government. Today, we're going to start by taking a look at the Republican Party. We'll talk about why political parties exist in the United States, the role they play in the electoral process, and how the Republican Party is structured. To help us break this down, we have my fellow Lincoln Project co-founder, a communications strategist and former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party, Jennifer Horn. Thanks for being on, Jennifer. I love being here. Thanks for inviting me. And making his Lincoln Project podcast debut, we have former chairman of the Republican National Committee and former Lieutenant Governor of Maryland, Michael Steele. Michael, thanks for being on today. It is great to be with you guys. Looking forward to the conversation. So let's talk about why parties exist. Michael, can you start by breaking down why political parties exist in the first place and what function they serve in American politics and maybe start with some historical context for us. It's an excellent way to begin to understand how this mess that we call politics uh, plays itself out. And, And one of the main vehicles is political parties. Now, the interesting and somewhat ironic and actually rather insightful thinking of our founders was they didn't want political parties. They originally uh, scoffed at the idea of having political parties, um, especially because they thought that uh, basically men couldn't be trusted to run them. <laughs> so, uh, you know, well, that turned out to be somewhat true. And, and, and so there was a great resistance um, when uh, the founders gathered in Philadelphia uh, to sort of lay out the governing structure of the country uh, about this idea of sort of factionalizing uh, this new this new experiment, this new uh, country uh, along political slash party lines. Remember, these are are men who just left a political system, which was a parliamentarian system Mm -hmm. where there were multiple fractious and factionalized uh, parties. And so they did not want to replicate that. But as things would play themselves out, uh, they begrudgingly agreed to um, what we now have as our system, where you have these two parties which emerged, you know, one, you know, back in the day, you know, there was the Whigs and, you know, the Jeffersonian this and the, you know, the various other political parties that sort of grew out of this out of this period um, uh, in the, in the late uh, 1780s and 90s and well into, you know, where we had our first real political campaign was the election of 1800, right. where you had uh, Jefferson and Adams who had, by that point, formed these relatively tight factions 
Um, and we had our first real presidential campaign in 1800, which was a barn burner. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the fact that, uh, uh, Jefferson lost really ticked him off. So that set yeah. up, you know, elections, um, you know, later on where Jefferson, Adams and others would go go at each other. So that's kind of where where we we've historically uh, start this narrative. Over time, they they would form themselves uh, along um, uh Social and and which you mean class as well as political lines that would eventually evolve into what we have now, which is um, much more of a grassroots oriented uh, political system. Again, still driven by the party. So what what happens is the party sort of adapted to the realities as the vote in the voting in the country changed, meaning more women men of lesser economic status could uh, participate. uh, And certainly uh, with the advent of the black vote, uh, black men vote Mm -hmm. uh, immediately after during the beginning of reconstruction, you have, you have this sort of uh, seedlings of pockets of resistance to the system as it, as it was evolving. And you have these different political voices that emerge and so that that sort of plays out the fears of the of the founders because all of a sudden now instead of well gentried white men being the deciders of who would be president and who would be governor and remember originally we didn't even elect our senators right. they were appointed right. uh, by the governors of the states or nominate our presidential candidates and as a point of fact uh, the citizens of the District of Columbia of which I I hail from. Um, couldn't vote for president until 1960. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, 64 was the first time they could they could cast a vote for president. So the realities of the evolution of political power devolving into the hands of the citizens actually, and, and somewhat ironically, is something the founders would probably be very happy with. But at the same time, not very happy with the way the political parties have maneuvered and manipulated the situation. You mentioned the structure, I think, at the beginning of your answer, and I wanted to unpack this just a little bit, and maybe Jennifer, you can speak to this too, but Michael, one of the key distinctions, as I understand it, between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, and I mean at the national level, the national structures, are the organization structure, where the Democratic National Committee, I think, according to its bylaws, essentially holds a lot of power at the top. Uh, and that power over its state chapters, whereas the Republican Party is almost the inverse of that, where the state parties themselves is where most of the power is held, and then it is granted to the National Committee by uh, by means of different committees and and voting structures. Is that more or less accurate? Yeah, it's a very interesting and delicate balance between how the systems kind of play themselves out on a day to day basis, and how the the leaders try to use the system, stay within certain uh, guideposts, but then when convenient, kind of go outside those guideposts. Mm. And, and I, think, I think that when you look at um, how an elected official sort of detaches from the party once they're elected, Right. Um, mm-hmm. The the party still plays a role and functions to carry out sort of the political will. But then there's this real there's this real challenge between and this kind of goes back to the, the first point I was making about the founders. They were very serious about governing. 
they didn't want it to be just about the politics. They didn't yeah. want the political parties to sort of set the tone um, and and refashion the governing. They, the governing at the end of the day was the most important piece. Um, and so that's always been a very delicate challenge for the political parties is when to get out of the way of the policymaking, the governing, and let the politics kind of, you know, let those things kind of float on the politics. So, you know, that's when you get people saying, call your congressman and tell him to vote for, yeah, right? So yeah. that's the politics, all right, kind of moving on the governing. But the governing is actually the how you, how you actually make the sausage at the end of the day. So there's this difference between the governing and then the governance of the party structure itself. So the you're, you're on the Republican side, you have your national committeemen and national committee women and your state party chairs who have some authority and control within the party structure, but no governing authority. But they're actually sort of setting the pathway for elected officials to become elected officials. Is there like, can you talk about the influence that they have then on those elected officials in the process itself. Let me jump in just for a second and make and kind of take a step back. Yeah, please. Because um, Michael did a great job at laying out the history of how of, of the party system in our country. But I think at a at a very basic level for people to understand, because I think there's a lot of people, Ron, that have come to politics through our efforts at the Lincoln Project. Yeah, and um, who have not engaged at this level in the past. And so, at a very basic level, a party's purpose, its whole purpose for existing is to organize people, to elect politicians, to hold, execute and hold on to power. That's what a party is. That's what it's for. And for most of us, we come to the, the political system with um, high hopes of being engaged in honorable efforts to advance um, good policy that lifts up the whole community. That And, and we choose our party and our level of engagement in the party uh, based on our core values, the way that we live our lives, what we've learned as children, how we would live even if we weren't involved in politics. So like to, so I, I just think for, that's you know an understanding of of the party itself. Yeah. Your idea about the inverse of the democratic the way the democrats run their party versus the way we do I've heard a lot of people say that. I, I think it would be a mistake to underestimate the degree to which the national party including on the republican side has a significant amount of power and influence, you know, and Michael and I come at it from two different, like he mm -hmm. was chairman of the national party. I was right. chairman of a state party. So while we function independently to some degree at the state level, right. Um, as chairman, I was, I felt that one of my responsibilities, for example, was to make sure that we won as many state races as we could, whereas the national party got more involved in those federal races. There's a difference in what the responsibility is. But even though we raised money at the state level, we organized at the state level, we concentrated on races at the state level, I still depended on the national party, the leadership at the national party to make, to bring additional funding into my state to, um, to give me kind of the support that I needed in different, that you need at the state level in different ways to succeed. And of course, the, the, the national party does that because strong state parties lifts us up and puts us in a position where we can win at the federal level, which expands our influence and makes it easier to hold on to power in Republican hands. Right. And, and it's the same on the Democratic side. So I, I, I hope that that just gives people a 
a layman's understanding of what the parties are all about. It does. That's terrific. And just as a point of correction, I want to go back because I confused the election of, of 1896 with the, I mean, it was 1796 with the election of 1800. Jefferson won the second one, 1800, lost 1896. So just since we're doing it, because remember- I don't remember, even try <laughs> to quote history. This is why. Well, no, well, no, and, and, and it's important because, and it really kind of goes what we're talking about, because remember in that election, the first time Jefferson and Adams went at each other, Adams won. Adams won because the electoral college votes uh, went right, against him. Right, right. And Jefferson swore. Jefferson swore, "I would never let that happen again." And it is the first time the eighteen hundred election where a presidential candidate actually lobbied, if you will, at that time the electoral college yes. voters to vote for him in the Electoral College. And that's how, in 1800, he defeated John Adams um, by something like eight electoral votes. Yes. And it was also the first time, if I'm not mistaken, that the transfer of power between two presidents was two presidents of opposite parties, which was that's a correct. major, major it, milestone for, for our that's system. Exactly. Because Jefferson was the Jeffersonian party, if I'm not mistaken, was Republican, Democratic Republican. Yep. Yeah. Democratic yep. Republican. Yep. And Adams was an independent. Yep. Um, a Federalist. So that's where the Federalist Society and all that kind of borns out of that. And, and again, it kind of goes to, you know, what these parties do and how they function um, even back then, those those monikers, Democratic, Republican, and Federalist, spoke to um, an emerging ideology. Again, would help shape not just the political infrastructure, but the country itself. And you find candidates and and parties and the American people sort of aligning themselves accordingly. And, and again, it's, it's interesting how perceptive the founders were about that possibly being a problem uh, as opposed to allowing um, the country uh, to go down a particular road without all of these external influences. And, and I, you know, at the end of the day, I'm glad for the external influences because it, I think it shapes better government. And throughout histories, parties have developed in response to the circumstances of the time, to the developments right. within the nation, that we no longer have the Whigs, right, in, in, in the United States. And, and when needs develop that are unmet or unheard by parties, new parties you know, are born and come from that. So we've come to this point now where we have these two major parties that have been, Michael might have an exact date, you know, historically that we've had these, these two major parties, the Republican party and the Democratic party. Um, and so I, I, I just think for, for like a, the base of the conversation, we should understand the party system in and of itself is not inherently evil. And what mm. has happened before in our history and will happen again is when the party becomes um, more about power and less about governance. Right. And in this particular case, in the moment that we're living in now, the Republican Party has become to an extreme more about power and to an extreme less about governance. That's when crisis occurs. And that's what I think we're facing today. That's a really good segue to one of the critical things a party does that I'd like you both to talk about, which is to lay out a platform. And 
it's important to understand the role of a platform in an institution that Jennifer, as you described it, exists to get people elected and to hold on to power. So there's a balance here. Jennifer, why don't you walk us through how that happens at the state level, the the formation of a platform? And then Michael, maybe you can explain how that shapes the national platform. Sure. And and so I think the process is very similar and it what happens at the state feeds what we see at the national level. So let me start by reminding people that the the RNC, the Republican National Committee, has three members from every state, a national committee man, national committee woman, and that's and the state chair. And so 168 members, and they gather at this point, like maybe three times a year, but among other things, um, when they are voting on policy, on platforms and all that. Theoretically, they are bringing the will of the people from their party in their state to the national level, not unlike when we you know, elect a congressman or a senator. So at the state level, and the exact process can be a little bit different from state to state because we are Republicans. We believe in, you know, independence and, and autonomy in these things. Um, in New Hampshire, um, we vote on a platform every two years. And um, I want, I served as chairman of the platform committee uh, once before I became chairman. I was chairman for two terms. And then I was involved in trying to make a significant change in the platform the cycle after I finished being chairman. So the, when I was chairman of the platform committee, we had a long, I, I don't remember how many pages our platform was. The committee that I put together had a goal of trying to condense that and trying to build a document that was based on that was that expressed principles and got away from trying to express an opinion on every piece of legislation and every new social trend and whatever it was and so that we could say we are just we, this is who we are these are these are the immovable principles that define us as republicans and we were like halfway successful at doing that we had our statement of principles but then they also passed like the application of principles where they couldn't resist going after these individual issues. And so the state committee, the state level, the state committee, there's about 500 people on that committee in New Hampshire, comes together every two years and they vote on it. And just like anything else, they can offer changes and you know, all the, you know, kind of go through this whole long, painful process. The thing about the platform is, is that theoretically, if you read the platform, you know who we are as Republicans. Over the years, at least in New Hampshire and at the national level, I don't know about state to state, our platforms have become complicated, um, detailed, where they should be high-level principle. And they have been, by many people, developed to be used as tools or weapons against people. They want to take the platform and say, if you don't agree 100% with every detailed thing we wrote down in here, you're not a good Republican. You shouldn't be elected as a state rep, as a congressman. You shouldn't, and and it becomes a weapon instead of being an inspirational document that is uh, about principle and high, you know, high ideals to which we, you know, aspire. It becomes this, you know, piece by piece by piece by piece. And you and I have talked about this before, Ron. Um, there are a couple of areas where it's become particularly damaging to the Republican Party that the platform is used in that manner. And equal rights to all Americans is one of those one of those mm-hmm. ways. Um, I don't know if you mind if I kind of veer off a little bit here and talk about that a little bit because it's something I think is really sure. um, important and kind of um, 
sort of exposes a little bit of what is wrong in the Republican Party right now. Um, at, and Michael, you've talked about this before, about how the issue of marriage and gay rights um, kind of came into the conversation back in the 90s, where we didn't used to talk about that stuff. Um, and in the Republican platform, it has become a weapon. If you oppose language in the platform that talks about traditional families and in many state platforms, you know, directly opposes equal rights for the LGBTQ community, then you become a target in the party. And that is part of what happened to me um, because I was a fairly vocal about the issue as I was, you know, leaving my role as chairman and then in, in my efforts after that. Um, so at the year, the next time we voted on a platform was the year later. And I was part of an organized group of people who were trying to remove what I call exclusive language. We had language in our platform that said, we believe in equal rights for everybody who's an American, unless you're gay. That's mm. what the platform said. If you're gay, then you don't have equal rights. Wow. And, and whether you like it or not, that's what that language means. Yeah. And so we're all so offended right now that we have a president who was trying to suppress the vote, who was advocating to not count votes. It is just as bad. It's on the same level to say that as Republicans, we advocate to deny rights. That is profoundly un-American. So if we as Republicans cannot acknowledge that and look at our platform and recognize the damage that it does, I mean, the, the platform is theoretically a foundational document to the party. So if, yeah. it, if and, and it's not just in this issue that it's used that way, but this is one of the most damaging issues where it's used that way. Michael, there's two there are two things I'd love for you to speak to uh, with regard to the national platform. And the first is obviously what Jennifer's talking about, these very divisive, exclusive pieces of the right. platform that are used as as weapons. How it, for for an institution whose purpose is to get people elected to win a majority of public opinion, to have these pieces of of these planks, uh, that are so out of touch with the majority of Americans, for example, LGBTQ support, marriage equality is an overwhelmingly positive issue for, for most Americans. And so for this plank to still be in the platform is completely out of touch. What purpose does that serve? But then second, with that context, I'd love for you to speak to the significance of the national party declining to adopt a new platform at the, at the convention this last election cycle. There's a lot of history in the in the run up to you know party and organization structure, how um, they delineate between the national, the state, and the local party, um, and you know Jennifer and I both have our roots in very local you know grassroots politics, um, and worked our way up seemingly through this this sort of wacky structure, um, and you know as a state chairman she served on the national committee. Uh, at the national level, you know, I chaired at the national level, but I also served as a state chairman and a county chairman. So, you know, you have all of these these various experiences that come in, and all of this is goes into shaping what ultimately becomes your platform, right? When you go back and you look at just to sort of add a little bit more history into the conversation, so the Democratic Party is the oldest political party, established in 1828, has its roots going back to Jefferson and Madison back to 1792 or something like that. So they have, they have 
an historical link there, but they were founded in 1828, really by Andrew Jackson, which is why he's the, you know, the the preeminent uh, Democratic player. And these these men um, represented uh, different types of views of government, and 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 the competition over those views sort of culminating in you know the Andrew Jackson type, who was just a plain spoken you know. Sob, you know, um, and, and and just really, you know, far far removed from the sort of you know delicate eloquence of a Thomas Jefferson, um, you know, sort of Jacks this sort of Jacksonian kind of Democratic Party is one that the party tries to adhere to in many respects today. And you can see that ongoing competition. Um, in its platform, as it deals with the progressives like AOC, uh, Andrea, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the more traditional Democrats like Joe Biden, right? So you mm-hmm. see that sort of that Biden-esque eloquence linking back to um, Thomas Jefferson and, yeah, and James Madison, yeah. and this kind of in-your-face, <laughs> no, it's going to tear this son of a bitch up kind of deal <laughs> with AOC and Andrew Jackson, yeah. right? You still, you, so you can see that historic tension. On the Republican side, founded in 1854 um, by, you know, a, a group of men who saw the, the, the importance of civil rights as it was formulating around the issue of, of, um, of slavery uh, and the abolition of slavery. Um, you had the Whig Party which was kind of like, well, you know, we'll learn to live with it, and we just, we just don't want it to expand, and yeah. you know, we could just kind of, just kind of roll with that. Um, and and then, of course, the sort of this new emerging view around abolition really sparked by uh, former slaves like Thomas, not Thomas, um, uh, Frederick Douglass. Uh, and Abraham Lincoln, and Abraham Lincoln was actually sort of an ironic figure for the, you know, as one of the founders of the party, because he was caught in between these two worlds, right? So you have this sort of, again, this kind of tension that's played out with the the sort of Northeastern Republicans as we've come to know them, right? Yeah. Uh, well, you know what? Look, let's not worry about all this other, let's just, everybody's, everything's fine. We're going to be good. Don't worry about it. Don't make a big deal. We just won't, you know, we don't have to worry about these gay issues and all this stuff. We're just you know, making sure the economy is good. Yeah. We're good. Yeah. Um, I, I am a Northeast before, Republican. I'm just pointing it out. <laughs> she is, right, right. We're not, we're not, and then, and then the good tension, governance. We're about good governance, Michael. Right. Exactly. No, exactly the right. point. Versus the tension um, that came with this, this sort of these upstarts, it was like, let's press the system. And we have that in the modern era manifesting itself, as, as uh, the chairwoman uh, noted earlier, um, with um, the influence of the moral majority, social yes. issues, abortion, yeah. uh, and, you know, now, you know, pushing back against the sort of libertarian view on on some of these issues like gay marriage by reestablishing family values. So those tensions are playing themselves out today in the party. Along comes Donald Trump. Right. Who doesn't care about any of that. He doesn't. I mean, this is not an anti-Trump. It's, I know the guy, I think we've kind of figured him out by now as a country. (laughs) He doesn't care about those types of battles. 
right? They're right. irrelevant to him. Right. The history, the connection, the whys, the hows, totally irrelevant. Yeah. So when it came to, to Jennifer's point about what these platforms are set out to do, when it came to this election cycle, what happened? The Republican Party is like, well, so what do you want to do, boss? Now, keeping in mind, the president of the, par- of the United States is the titular head of the party he represents. All right. Right. So Barack Obama as president was the titular head of the Democratic Party. Donald Trump as president is the titular head of the Republican Party. So they operationalize um, the political process to reinforce their policies, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump, in, in helping as the nominee of the party in 2016, changed, fundamentally changed the direction of what had been up to that point almost 75 years of Republican orthodoxy along real fundamental lines like trade, trade wars, Russia, et cetera. And, and so the party you saw move off of long-held positions reinforced by the likes of, uh, of Reagan and Bush um, sort of have that disintegrate into this, well, because I have a good relationship with Putin, Yeah, the party's now going to have a good relationship uh, with Putin. Yeah, Even yeah. though the party's sitting there No matter how going, dangerous Putin what? might be. No right. matter how right. dangerous it might be. And the party's sitting there going, no, that's not what we want to do. So when you got to 2020, the party, again, looking to the titular heads, asking, okay, so... What's what's going to be the challenge? You know, what's the vision for the next four years? Like maybe we want to talk about the coronavirus and our we response to, to it in the platform. We want to talk about, you know, expanding the economy that's grown under your leadership. Yeah. And da, da, da. Trump was like, nah, nah, no, we're not doing anything. We're not doing anything. In fact, we can just leave it the way it is from 2016. And that's essentially what they did. So right now you can basically argue the party doesn't have a guiding ideological set of values or principles that it wants to speak to the country about in the form of its policies. Because remember, that's what sort of underlines all of that. The The final point I'd want to make on it is, and I think Jennifer made an excellent point that should not be glossed over, is these platforms, whether it's the national level or even at the state and the, the central committees, the local level, you know, central committees, county parties yeah. have platforms. Why? I don't know, but they do. <laughs> the point is they've become litmus tests. They've mm. become, um, they've been operationalized as cudgels against those who do not preach or believe a particular orthodoxy set by, in my view, a small group of narrow-minded individuals. And they, because they're active, and I put that in quotation marks, they're because they're activists, they get to set the stage and the rules and the, and, the, and the conversation for the rest of us. These platforms are supposed to be visionary. They're supposed to speak broadly about ideals, and principles that for almost like the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Ten Commandments stated broadly, 
thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. That covered everything that could possibly touch on that subject. <laughs> but what you have today are people specifically saying, thou shalt not, you know, commit, you know, get, you know, fornication. <laughs> thou shalt not. I mean, right. so they, they narrowed down to very specific acts, um, which may or may not, you know, depending on the the climate and the culture of that community, be an accurate reflection of what that community feels. The community broadly feels, yeah, thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's property, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt, you know, broad ideas. But now you're going to get into the minutia, and the irony is to watch the Republicans behave like they claim the Democrats do. Yeah. And behave in a way in which they are minutely dictating the terms in which you engage who you love, who you, you know, how you raise your kids, uh, where you live. I mean, all of these things that they, you know, have moved, that they once moved into, they now move away from. I think it's important to note for our listeners why those litmus tests are so effective at an electoral level. And that's because of how districts have been drawn so that most, most, uh, state legislative and congressional districts are primarily primary races as opposed to general election races, which means that your 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 audience usually in a closed primary is just the people in your own party. And so if you can appeal to that litmus test as the thing that makes you a Republican or not a Republican, then the people who adhere to it the closest are the ones who end up getting elected. So real quick, you yeah. said something that is the central problem in this political climate. And and you said that litmus test makes you a Republican or not a Republican. That mm. is not what makes me a Republican right. or not a Republican. Right. I could give a damn about your litmus test. Right. What makes me a Republican is the fact that I believe in the founding principles of the party about the individual rights and liberties and freedoms granted to us by the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And the the idea of conservatism is not a moral majority view about gay people or a, a right-wing view about Black people. It is what makes me a conservative is the fact that I want to conserve those <laughs> founding principles founded under our Constitution. That's what, that's what conservatism ultimately is about, is that the Constitution is it. And yes. that's what we protect. That's what we defend. That's what we swear an oath to. You don't swear an oath of allegiance to a party, a president, or some principle. You make that oath to the Constitution as an elected official because that, as a conservative, is what I want to conserve. And the irony of that is so do Democrats. All right? right. So this is not something that you can put into a fine box and say that, you know, Jennifer is a conservative and Michael is a conservative because they stand on this position this way. No, we're conservatives because we want to conserve the Constitution. Now, Jennifer may be a liberal or a moderate or conservative on, you know, small C, you know, I mean, I mean, capital C conservative on, you know, marriage or environment or some other policy issue. Okay, we can have that fight, but we are banded together as Republicans 
under the idea of protecting and defending the Constitution of the United States. Man, so well said. Beautifully ahead, said. Beautifully said. Yeah. Like, there's nothing left to say. We should all go home. Michael just... <laughs> like, that's I still the, have two more questions. It. Go ahead. So, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I have to say, it's gratifying to me because, um, you know, Michael just went through this list of things that used to be part of my speech as as um, when I was chairman, when I was a candidate. And so it's it's very, it's good for me to hear that Michael Steele says the same thing. Like, I know I'm in yeah, the right lane. I know yeah, I'm okay. So yeah. I just want to magnify something that Michael alluded to before he gave us that, you know, jump from your seats and applaud, <laughs> you know, um, speech just now. I loved it. Um, he talked about the platform and the RNC deciding for the first time in 75 years not to vote on a platform at their convention. I, I think we have to magnify what that what happened there and what and what that means. They didn't just they didn't vote and say we're going to stick with our platform as it exists. We still feel the same way about all these things. Two things. One, the reason they didn't that Trump didn't want to be bothered with the platform fight is because he never cared about it to begin with. He never cared about the issues. He doesn't, he, he has no principle upon which he stands or develops policy from. Um, he, it, the platform to him was a nuisance. You know, he would much rather be able to just go out there and make these general statements that convince evangelicals of one thing while he's convincing moderates of something else. You know, like he, so the platform is an inconvenience for him. But what the party did when they went along with that, because remember that part of what they did was issue a statement that said having once they told us that we weren't going to debate or vote on a new platform that we support Donald Trump the official statement from the party was like we like that we just that's it we're just here to support Donald Trump whatever he says whatever he does you know that's who we are and if you if you yeah. look it up you will see that the definition of a cult is misplaced or or excessive devotion to a, a a single individual that's what a cult is when when the and we all know how damaging and dangerous cults can be so when that statement came out from the rnc for me somebody who is still a republican although you know, those days are running short, man. <laughs> those are um, when that statement. It depends on what you yeah. mean. Um, when that statement came out, for me, that was like that. That was like you know, lightning striking inside yeah. the 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 house where I was standing. That the Republican Party leadership, Ronna Romney McDaniel, because I believe in naming names at this point, and every member of the RNC just told the whole world that we are devoted to Donald Trump. Yep. Mm -hmm. Don't care about anything else. Take your principles, your values, your pandemic, your deficit spending, your global instability, and shove it. We're here for Donald Trump. That's it. I've got two more questions before I let you both go, and they're much more current and newsy, but really important to understand. And one of them is because of something Reid mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago about how Donald Trump now owns the Republican Party, which is what you just said, Jennifer. And in more ways than just metaphorically, he owns the Republican Party because the family, the Trumps, have actually invested or co-opted many of the private mechanics 
and data vendors and firms that help to elect these people. And so a lot of it he now he now owns. So so much of the influence that national parties have comes from their data work and the contact info for donors and motivated volunteers and voter histories and the vendor relationships that are, that are in place. So Michael, can you talk to this a little bit uh, about like what does it mean that the Trump family now owns a considerable portion of that information? And that and that infrastructure, grifters grift. This has mm-hmm. been, this has been the the magnification of grifting beyond any anyone's wildest imagination. So let me just give you some context. When yeah. I ran for chairman in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, uh, running for chairman of the national party is like running for president. You have to go to all fifty states plus the seven territories uh, in the District of Columbia. You so you're running nationally, right. uh, and I would visit with these these members of the 168, the the National Committee, and they would look me in the eye and they would tell me, you know, I'm fed up with the control of our party by the special interests. And I'm like, what special interests are you talking about? I know, but I, you got to tell, I want to spell it out. Yeah. And, and they were like, yeah. you know, all of, all of these vendors and, and these no bid contracts and the deals that are cut, they impose their consultants on us. And so, you know, we, you know, we have consultants that we're trying to groom and develop here in our states because they know our states. And we, if we want help from the RNC, we've got to get resource and want their resources. We got to take their vendors and use their consultants. So I said, I know that I'm a state chairman. I basically told the RNC in the 2000 election to stay the hell out of Maryland. I didn't want their help for our election because I'm not paying your prices. I'm just not. I'm not paying to play the game the way you want. So when I go in the door, they're like, and I I start, hey, you know, the quickest way to make enemies in Washington, D.C. is to mess with somebody's money. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. I went in and I eliminated no big contracts. My first week on the job, I canceled an $8 million contract to one of the leading vendors in town uh, who had been promised an after 2008 bonus. <laughs> Whether we won or lost, who the hell? No, we don't pay you bonuses if we lose elections. I'm sorry. $8 million contract just out of our pocket. And so I, w- I went after that, that aspect of it and tried to clean it up and got fired. That's ultimately at the end of the day what I got fired for because I messed with people's money. People mm. who were making money off of the RNC were no longer making money off of the RNC. And so news stories start getting planted in the, in the papers. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, they're, they're writing checks to a certain senator or a certain congressman who suddenly out of nowhere has something to opine about the RNC chairman. <laughs> Gee, I wonder where that came from, <laughs> right? Um, so that, that's the process. Flash forward, Ranks reestablishes it when he becomes chairman. Certain members inside the RNC who benefited before I became chairman, because that's how they keep it inside the family. So I go to the chair, you know, the national committee man in New Jersey and the national committee woman uh, in this state or that state or the chairman over there. And I cut little side deals with them to get money into their state to help them. Right. Who are they mm-hmm. going to support? They're going to support the guy who's cut stroking them checks, who's, you know, funneling vendor money and contracts and all this other thing. Reince reestablished that order, right? Trump gets elected, and now what they did was they made it a permanent part of the structure. So the mm. RNC, there was a reason why the RNC was brought in under the campaign umbrella of the campaign as opposed to being the standalone entity. 
So reason why the RNC leadership went out and basically said to any anyone who wanted to run it in the Republican presidential primary, well, you can, but we're not supporting you. Right. Mm. You don't get access to the resources that you're entitled to as a, as a candidate running for office in a Republican primary. You don't get access to our donors list, our mailing list and all of that. So they made it part of the brand of Trump. Yeah. And so right now you're listening to Trump and his allies talk about Don Jr. and, and T- Kimberly Guilfoy doing what? Having a role at the RNC. Now, why would that be? Yeah, and that was actually my my last question because that that reporting is relatively recent. That Trump Jr. and Kimberly Guilfoyle attempting to expand their influence at the RNC and might be trying to take over the RNC themselves. So, what impact could that have on future elections if they're successful? It'll have a huge impact. It'll have a huge pe- impact on the Republican primary, particularly if everybody's trying to position Don Jr. to be the nominee of the party. Or his father. I don't think his father will be the nominee. I think his father wants to be a kingmaker. He wants people to bow down to whomever he decides will be the nominee, more than likely his son. I can't see Donald Trump picking someone other than his son if his son decides to do it. Yeah. But here's the thing. What what groups should be doing is FOIA requests, looking at the FEC reports filed by the RNC and showing exactly where the money's going. And I bet you'll find they're paying for a lot of lawyers. Right. They're paying a lot of bills for Trump, for Trump organization. Exactly. And they're paying a lot of bills, personal bills for Donald Trump and his family. And that's why they want to hold on to it, because Donald Trump is broke. Mm -hmm. The man owes four hundred million dollars at least. He got no cash. And where's the cash cow sitting? It's in the form of an elephant sitting on Capitol Hill known as the RNC. And so if you can control that elephant, you can control that cash. You can pay your bills. So especially when the state of New York and other entities, private and, and public, start coming after him, you ain't got the cash to pay the bill. What, do you, what is he doing right now? I get 17 text messages a day asking me to donate money <laughs> exactly. to Donald Trump's defense fund. Defense that's fund where it's what? going. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's yeah. exactly what I was just going to say. It, and it's on the backs of donors and it's on the backs of small dollar donors. You know, the think about who Trump donors are, people who feel aggrieved, people who feel um, left behind and left out. And so, and many of them genuinely, um, you know, financially, um, you know, financially strapped who are keep every time they get one of those texts drops another 25 bucks in there and and so to you know to put a really an even finer point on on what Michael is saying here so when um when junior uh and and his girlfriend take over the RNC what they have what they have set themselves up to do very successfully now and you laid this out Ron with everything that you were saying about the the ownership um they see the RNC as the next great Trump business. It is a Trump business. Exactly. And it's a anybody business. who cares about the founding principles of the Republican Party, the, the should look at Trump Abraham and Trump Lincoln, University and need to look at all the previous. It just stole my line, Ron. They need to look at all the previous Trump businesses and the six um, bankruptcies that led this president to where he is today. That is what is going to happen to the RNC. And and let me also add a add a um, you know a point that that has. I've tried to make for years now 
um, about parties and in particular, about the Republican Party in particular. We know they exist for a purpose, to get people elected, to govern, to hold on to power. And theoretically, that that comes from a point, a place of principle, that we choose to engage with a particular party out of our, our own core personal values and principles. If we, and, and this is what I, is going to happen under a Donald Trump Jr., Kim Gilfoyle RNC that exists for the purpose of keeping daddy warm on the top floor of Trump Tower. If you have a party that does not speak to the people, that does not speak to their needs and speak to their hearts, then that party is going to die. If you have a party that cannot speak to the youngest generation of voters, that party is going to die. If you have a party that exists for the purpose of disenfranchising votes and withholding constitutional rights to this group or that group, and a party that exists for the purpose of um, legitimizing racism and bigotry, that party is going to die. That is what's happening to the Republican Party. It is destined to die if it stays on that path And by allowing the Trump operation to purchase their souls, they are simply expediting the process. Thanks to everyone at home for listening. And thanks to Michael and Jennifer for taking the time to sit down with us today. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.